Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Justin Trudeau's vaccine plan wants to prioritize Canadians based on race, not science. Don't let him divide us. Providing the vaccine based on race over risk will cost Canadian lives. Canada Proud Facebook page, February 16th. Why is the Trudeau government encouraging racism? Only the people actually vulnerable should be vaccinated. This would be people over the age of retirement and people with significant underlying health conditions. The left are consumed with race. Always have been. Even though there's only one race. The human race. I suspect that the government is trying to remind people of their woke credentials to help polling numbers. It seems a bit like reverse racism, at least to me. Ever since the Canadian government announced their recommendations back in February, that adults from Indigenous and racialized communities should be given priority for a COVID-19 vaccination. Those types of comments have popped up on social media, in Facebook comments, in tweets. And that's unsurprising. You'll find those kinds of comments online in response to Canadian news stories every day. Perhaps it's also unsurprising, but maybe a bit more disturbing, that one of the most powerful people in Canada has made very similar comments about prioritizing Indigenous people for vaccination. 
Well, again, through you, Mr. Speaker, that was one of our highest priorities to go into the 31 flying communities. Not only did Orange fly in, but the member flew in too to get his vaccine. So thank you for, for doing that and kind of jumping the line as I talked to a few chiefs that were pretty upset about that. Order. For flying into a community that he doesn't belong, but that's here nor there. So that was Ontario Premier Doug Ford back in March. He was responding to Member of Provincial Parliament Salma Makwa, an Indigenous man, who had asked Ford for details about exactly how the Ontario government was going to fulfill its duty to vaccinate urban Indigenous people. Instead of answering Mamakwa, Ford attacked him, accusing him of unfairly using his ethnicity to, quote, jump the line. In fact, Mamakwa had been invited by a northern Indigenous community to come get the shot as a show of support and to discourage any vaccine hesitancy. Mamakwa told CTV News that Doug Ford appeared to not understand the difference between urban Indigenous communities and those on reserve, and that Ford showed disrespect and indifference to the well-being of Indigenous people. Journalist Steve Pakin called it the worst thing I've ever heard an Ontario Premier say. Ford apologized. Saul Mamakwa wasn't buying it. In my experience, people only apologize for racist behavior when they get called out on it. I'm still committed to making sure all Indigenous people get vaccinated. The vaccine is safe. I trust the science. We want to stop the spread. The color of your skin shouldn't matter. That's the lesson that we teach kids about racism. It's a lesson that a five-year-old can understand. But a lot of people never seem to get past that kindergarten-level understanding. Because it's true. It shouldn't matter what color your skin is. But it's also true that it does matter. In a lot of ways. But right now, the way in which it might matter most is that if your skin is not white, you have a much higher chance of getting COVID, of getting hospitalized for COVID, and of dying from COVID. And if the whole idea with vaccines is to get them out first, to the people who are most likely to get the virus and therefore most likely to give it to everybody else? Well, you know, you can sort people out by age, you can sort us out by what kind of work we do or by which postal code we live in, but if you're serious about directing our limited supply to the people who need it the most, then yes, you also need to sort us out by race. And that is the science-backed government recommendation. Different provinces and health units have taken heed of the federal government's advice and rolled out policies to give priority to certain minority groups. In New Brunswick, Manitoba, Alberta, and BC, adults from First Nation communities have been given priority. This is a strategy that makes sense. But it's a hard strategy to swallow for anyone who is still clinging to that kindergarten understanding. I mean, we are talking about preferential access to something that we all want that we all need, based in part on the color of your skin. So yeah, maybe it's not shocking that we are seeing a lot of hate in response. Hate from people who I don't think think of themselves as hateful. People who think that they're actually fighting racism, reverse racism, by accusing Indigenous people of, as Doug Ford put it, jumping the line. Our new reporter, Sharice Sucharan, has been looking into the details of exactly why these policies are needed how they're working out, and if the Canadian public is willing to back them. Hi, Charisse. Hi, Jesse. Charisse, what did you set out to learn? 
Well, I've been hearing about people who faced racism and harassment from just going to get a vaccine or talking about getting a vaccine. And so I wanted to get a sense of how widespread this backlash has been and how it's been having an impact on real people. But more than that, I wanted to really understand the significance of these types of policies. Because for a long time, there's been evidence that race and ethnicity are huge indicators of access to healthcare, And we're seeing that in real time in this pandemic, which has really hit racialized communities so hard. But we rarely actually have the government acknowledge those disparities in the form of real-life health policy. And even then, there's pushback from leaders like Doug Ford. So we're in new territory here, and we've never actually seen health policy rolled out along the lines of racial identity at such a national scale. Will the Canadian public accept it? Well, welcome to the team. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Aaron Hamilton, James Thompson, Katie Quang, Michelle Doyle, Steve Story, Camille Tuznio, Elizabeth Robertson, and Charlotte. My name is Charlotte. I'm a musician in Montreal, and I support Canada Land because I believe that independent journalism is the only way forward at this point. Far from being a fringe belief, the idea that minority communities are somehow jumping the line to get the COVID vaccine ahead of more deserving groups has had real-life impacts. In early April, right after British Columbia decided to grant Indigenous people 18 and older priority for vaccinations, a member of the BC legislature actually went public about racist messages that she'd received in reaction to that announcement. Bowen Ma, who represents North Vancouver Lonsdale, posted a message to Facebook and Twitter about the sheer number of anti-Indigenous sentiments she'd been receiving. She said that in the worst case, the comments were extremely racist and in numbers through the roof. The statement was followed by a piece by journalist Moira Whiten in the Taiyi, which detailed how a lot of Indigenous people were being refused vaccine appointments by healthcare professionals, despite provincial orders saying that they were eligible. And in the northern part of the province, BC Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief Terry Teejee also went public about how racist assumptions of First Nations people jumping the queue for a vaccine had actually had harmful impacts on his community. Breen Willette, Vancouver-based Métis lawyer, has also personally faced this backlash. He detailed his experiences getting a vaccine on his blog. I called Vancouver Coastal Health at their vaccine registration line. Their website was indicating that Indigenous people 18 years of age and older were eligible. And the person who took my call politely but firmly tried to turn me away. She claimed that I was too young for the vaccine. And she said that I had to be an Indigenous elder over 65 years old to register. And I suspected this might happen. Sometimes... Things are not communicated very well, but also because of the way systemic racism works and can be reinforced by individual racism, sometimes people within the system will use their you know, de facto authority to try to turn Indigenous people away from services that they are entitled to. I can't say which it was in this case. I was put on hold for several minutes after I explained that the BC immunization website said that I was qualified for registration for the vaccine. And then after, you know, four to five minutes, the agent taking my call came back from hold and started through the registration process without any 
explanation or apology for the confusion. I was asked more personal information than the BC immunization website said I would be required to provide. And it took a very long time to find an available appointment. In, in total, I was on the call for just just shy of 70 minutes. As an Indigenous person who's been the subject of you know, pushback from individuals within positions of apparent authority, it makes you question whether or not the person is doing it on purpose because they've decided that they're going to police who's Indigenous and who's not and who's eligible and who's not. And oftentimes stalling a process, slowing it down, trying to make it unbearable or make it difficult to finish the process is a way that uh, we encounter these forms of racism in the, in, in, in the systems around us, including the medical system. After his blog post was published in the Georgia Strait, Breen started receiving messages from others who had faced similar barriers and even harassment just for trying to get vaccinated. It's caused some people to come forward privately through social media and tell me that they've encountered uh, similar problems, being told that they're not eligible, being turned away, or they've had family members who've been turned away. And some of us have had to take a proactive approach to ensure that our family members are able to get registered and get their vaccine. So for a family member who maybe isn't strong enough to assert their rights, we have to go on the call with them and make that push for them so that they can receive the vaccination. Yeah, so I've also had people reach out and tell me that that they've received the vaccine, but they've been very quiet about it because they don't want to become a focus of harassment and racism, either in their private personal life, their working life, or you know, for those people who are on social media, on, on the social media platforms. And I'm also aware of an individual who got the vaccine, told people at work that they had received the vaccine, and then people at work started to ostracize this person for receiving priority from coworkers to the person's supervisor. Brain explains that he's observed it's young Indigenous people who have taken up the role of educating and informing their communities about the benefits of vaccination using their own experience to encourage others. I think it's important that they understand that the, the statistics indicate that Indigenous peoples are, you know, according to the Indigenous Services Minister of Canada, that Indigenous peoples are three and a half to five times more vulnerable to COVID. And I would also hope that people understand that if the vaccines are there, and maybe the uptake isn't as high as one would hope among Indigenous, elderly Indigenous people because of the mistrust or because of the problems that they've encountered in the medical system in the past. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge 
research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. It's clear that this policy might take some getting used to for people. It's an unprecedented step in healthcare to explicitly give marginalized groups priority, something that we haven't really seen very much of in Canada. And as more and more health experts are pushing for other marginalized groups to be prioritized, I wanted to find out more about the public health argument for it, exactly how widespread this backlash has become, and if there's anywhere to combat it. So I took these questions to Dr. Alika Lafontaine. He's an anesthesiologist, and he's the president-elect nominee for the Canadian Medical Association. He's also originally from Treaty 7 in Saskatchewan and is Anishinaabe Cree and Pacific Islander. He's the founder of Safe Space, which is an app where Indigenous people can report their experiences of racism in the healthcare system. Dr. Lafontaine created the app after hearing countless stories of mistreatment within the medical system. This mistreatment has historical roots. Canada has a dark history of conducting procedures on Indigenous people without their consent, as well as a history of medical neglect, for example, with kids in residential schools. He also says that to the extent that hesitancy does exist, it might have a lot to do with the fact that the relationship First Nations people have with doctors has been pretty fraught. Here in Alberta, you hear anecdotal reports, but it's different than what's happening in B.C. and Ontario, where there seems to be more of an organized resistance against Indigenous people receiving vaccination. I think that the feelings of non-Indigenous Canadians when it comes to limited resources in the health system is understandable. But these decisions have gone through multiple layers of, you know, policy and research and political consideration. So when we look at who gets vaccinations first, uh, we really measure it based on those who can be most adversely affected. And then also what are the secondary impacts of, you know, not vaccinating certain demographics. And I think it's clear from the experience in the United States that Indigenous people have a much higher risk when it comes to uh, COVID. You know, three and a half times is the number that the CDC has uh, published as far as 
the effects on its own indigenous people. And, you know, our, our national council that, that looks at, you know, vaccinations and has created these type of triage protocols, they, they agree with that assessment um, as far as, you know, the, the impact that could happen if Indigenous communities don't get vaccinated and also the secondary effects that can happen to surrounding areas. I kind of want to go back. You mentioned the phrase organized resistance. Can you describe what you mean by that? I think there's groups of individuals who are sharing and amplifying their messages on social media and or organizing protests. Um, and I think that that's more concerning than just the regular frustration that people have when it comes to accessing healthcare here in Canada. Right. And why do you think we're seeing this sort of level of resistance or, or hate towards people getting priority around vaccinations? I, I think it's twofold. The, the first is, is we live in these colonized systems. So the historical you know, structures and culture that we have in Canada means that all of us kind of swim in this ocean of uh, racialization, you know, whether it's overt or uh, less overt. I mean, there, there's messages that we've all grown up with that have labeled Indigenous peoples, uh, Black peoples, and you know, persons of color in certain ways that often have negative connotations. And that, that's just the reality of the systems that we live in. Um, now, if you layer on top of that, you know, this pandemic, the limited access that people have to vaccines just because of availability, and then the high levels of stress because of, you know, just the, the effects of going through this pandemic, it, it's understandable that people are quite upset. Now, I, I think that there's always a line, though, you know, what is reasonable and what is unreasonable. If you were to make the public health case for prioritizing vaccinations of First Nations, Métis, or Inuit people to a bunch of white settlers who are complaining that it's not fair or that they're just asking questions. What would be your case? So I, I think the first thing that needs to be understood is that healthcare resource distribution historically hasn't been fair. You know, if you look at the places that we've built hospitals, the places that we've provided access to primary health care, these are often urban centers, you know, or they've been in towns that aren't uh, on reserve or communities that that aren't you know in, in remote parts of Canada. So our, our health system in general has not been designed to be fair and accessible to everybody in Canada. And I think because of that, you then have differing effects of persons who can be infected with COVID and the subsequent things that can happen if they end up having severe illness as a result. You know the the experience of someone who lives in say Edmonton, in the province that I live in is going to have a very different experience than someone who lives in, you know, a First Nation community along the Northwest Territory border. A person who lives in that rural remote location is going to first have to be uh, transferred to a smaller town where the primary care clinic or smaller hospital is. They'll then be transferred to, you know, a regional center like the one that I work in in Grand Prairie, and they might be subsequently transferred to Edmonton. So at each one of those steps, is an added layer of complexity and another opportunity to, you know, have, have limited access to care uh, or delayed access to treatment. Now, if you're in Edmonton, you just walk over to a primary care clinic, you call an ambulance, suddenly you're at, you know, a quaternary care center like Royal University Hospital, and uh, suddenly you get access to the highest level of care that you can within the province. And so that that's kind of the first uh, part that I'd explain to people is that because of the way that we've inequitably built our system, Rural remote communities, particularly Indigenous communities, are at greater risk. The second is that when you layer over the social determinants of health, 
you know, the fact that there's limited housing, that you often have multifamily, multi-generational groups within the same home. That layers on top of what's already inequity, greater inequities. And so the, the impact of having COVID within indigenous communities, the risk for it to spread, the risk to mitigate that spread, and then the risk of being able to be transferred to a place where you can get the best kind of care possible. I mean, it's, it's just not inequitable. And so providing vaccines to those communities makes much more sense uh, when you look at the impact that vaccination can have. Can you explain some of the thinking behind also distributing vaccines to urban First Nations? So once again, when you look within the urban population, it's it's not all equal as well. You know, so uh, when you're looking at multi-generational homes, when you're looking at uh, access to different types of social and, and health services, when you're looking at the activities and experiences of racialization within care, uh, when you consider the, the history of residential schools and the real Canadian history where you know, persons often receive substandard care or limited access to different options uh, as part of their lived experience. Uh, and then just the mobility that sometimes happens between, you know, First Nation communities and these urban centers. You know, like I described in the previous example, you often have individuals who are taken from, you know, rural remote communities and brought to Edmonton. Now, they may not have a way to get back. You know, they, they may not have, you know, the, the social support systems to be able to navigate, you know, systems that are far away from, you know, their their Indigenous communities that that they uh, resided in previously. So, you know, all, all these things layer on top of each other to create a much more complex health and social interaction within urban communities than just for the person who grew up and has always lived in Edmonton. Some provincial and local governments are focusing vaccination efforts on other types of marginalized communities. How can you explain the thinking behind this as well? So I, I think a lot of the thinking is based on similar types of data. So if you look at Black and person of color populations in the U.S. as well, uh, there's often much higher risk when it comes to COVID. People show up to receive vaccination, and I'm not even talking about those who maybe from you know younger demographics like in BC they've opened it up to all age groups i'm talking about persons within demographics that are similar to other demographics across the country you know those indigenous people that are older than 60 or older than 70 uh, there are reports of these individuals being denied vaccination or being told to go to you know quote unquote their own vaccination site and so Racism is not restricted to just Indigenous peoples in Canada. It's also something that's experienced by Black and persons of colour. And so to some degree, there are similar experiences and thus similar risks. So I kind of wanted to talk about something a little bit different. Aside from this sort of backlash we're seeing against prioritizing vaccines for certain communities, there's actually been barriers for Indigenous people in getting the vaccines. What I'm talking about is that in BC, there's been some reports of people who call into their healthcare centers to book a vaccine appointment, and the person on the other line basically refuses, saying they have no idea about this new policy. So why do you think that type of misinformation within the healthcare system is happening? So it's, it's an interesting cultural reality when you have decisions made at higher levels than your frontline persons who provide the actual care uh, choose not to either become informed of those uh, decisions or they choose to actively resist them. You know, and, and this goes back to just the way that power differentials work within healthcare for anyone who comes for healthcare. 
You know, as an anesthesiologist, when you come and see me in the operating room, although we're co-creating your pathway through healthcare, to a great degree, I get to make decisions unilaterally. You know, the types of drugs that I provide, the duration of your anesthetic, you know, the standing orders that I leave for you that you can access for yourself once you go onto the floor post-surgically. And I, I think that that's the reality that we're talking about right here is that although we have guidelines and clear rules within places like BC and Ontario, persons in the front line still get to exert a degree of influence. And that influence is often colored by, you know, the experiences that they've had growing up. And once again, this, this social culture of colonization that we've all inherited as Canadians. And so the, the default position of many people within the healthcare system is that Indigenous peoples uh, don't have access unless they can argue for it, you know, unless they can negotiate for it. Do you have a sense of how this sort of either the backlash on vaccines or, or this sort of misinformation within the health system, do you have a sense of how that's impacting the actual rollout of the vaccine? I think it's one of the things that we've come to realize is more broad than we originally expected. You know, and I, I think that there is growing political traction, both within health systems and within, you know, the provincial political system to address these things more directly. One of the big challenges whenever you have, once again, limited supply within the healthcare system is that priorities for one demographic group that really do need access to these vaccines for uh, very well-researched, established, data-driven uh, type reasons can get overwhelmed by, you know, needs from other demographic groups. And we're, we're seeing this in Ontario right now where, you know, the Indigenous communities that uh, were told that they'd be part of phase one are now not vaccinated fully, especially within urban centres, but people are moving on to, you know, phase two and further down. So it, there's, there's a big risk to, you know, state that this is a priority and then slowly let it get overwhelmed by other priorities you're not getting access to the vaccine, someone else is getting access to the vaccine. And I think that's the real danger here. Could you explain a little bit more about what you think about the, the danger is? So I think the real danger is that vaccine supply will be absorbed by demographic groups that fall further down the priority list than Indigenous peoples. And I, I think that that's just the reality of how these types of vaccine rollouts uh, happen. You, you know, just, just to extend on that, I, I think often when we look at differential vaccination rates, especially when we compare, you know, higher socioeconomic demographics with, say, Indigenous populations, uh, it's easy for us to reason away those numbers in ways other than we were just talking about. You know, it's easy for us to say, you know, vaccination rates are lower because of vaccination hesitancy, you know, or vaccination rates are lower because, you know, Indigenous communities are disinterested in being involved in, in the vaccination rollout. And so I, I think that we have to be careful when we use vaccine hesitancy in the context of Indigenous communities. You know, if you had a bad experience or I had a bad experience and I came into a health system, it's normal for us to expect more of the same. And so I, I don't think that Indigenous peoples are hesitant when it comes to the vaccines itself. I think they're hesitant because of past bad experiences with the healthcare system. It's clear historically that Indigenous peoples receive substandard care within you know, non-Indigenous health systems, but also within Indian hospitals and to some degree within, you know, Indigenous systems that exist nowadays. And so I, I think that that probably has more to do with the hesitancy than anything to do with the actual vaccine. Is that we're bringing with us as Indigenous peoples, 
you know, this trauma that we experienced previously. What are some of those strategies that you're advocating for? I, I think sometimes the strategies center around learning that comes from having people from multiple different perspectives looking at a problem, right? So take the example of uh, vaccine denial that happens to, you know, indigenous people that are trying to get into the vaccine rollout happening in BC, right? So there's a variety of different reasons why that could happen. And uh, we've actually met about this with community stakeholders and, you know, insiders within health systems within BC. And, you know, you, you can split the reasons into, you know, ignorance. People aren't aware of what the policy is. Um, you can split it into active resistance, you know, persons who just don't feel that Indigenous people should receive access to the vaccine. But when you're looking at the levers of influence, you know, there, there's different ways that you can encourage people to make better decisions without actually having a formal complaint. If me as a physician received a letter from or an email from, you know, my regulatory body, and in it, it emphasized that Indigenous people do have access to vaccines and that it's a violation of your standards of practice, which it is, uh, to deny vaccine for someone who uh, has, has the right to access, you know, vaccines in, in this order. I mean, that, that carries a significant amount of weight. And so are there any other public health strategies that you'd like to see when it comes to this vaccine rollout? I think with the, the vaccine rollout, the government really needs to validate that this is really what's happening. It's really designed to be punitive towards people instead of achieving a level of, you know, restoration or reconciliation. And so when, when you're looking at strategies around public health and vaccination strategies, it's, it's really moving towards uh, helping to educate people, but also realizing that this harm is real. The harm of having you know, a 27-year-old who's eligible for a vaccine uh, and calling in and being told by you know, the community you're eligible and then being told on the phone that you know, you're, you're jumping the queue and being denied care and other things. I mean, that's something that someone carries with them throughout their life. And I, I think the biggest lesson for us to acknowledge is that pre-existing inequities are magnified in healthcare crises. And so when we're rebuilding our healthcare system and hopefully building a better healthcare system post-pandemic, I think looking at the places where inequities were the greatest and how harm was linked to those types of inequities is something that we could really learn from. So that brings us to where we're at now. Has the push to vaccinate Indigenous people been successful at combating COVID overall? While there isn't much data yet on the urban Indigenous population, statistics show that the vaccination uptake has been high in northern and rural communities. And that's meant a big drop in COVID infections. As of April 20th, over 300,000 doses have been administered in 654 communities. According to Dr. Tom Wong at Indigenous Services Canada, in First Nations communities, the numbers of COVID-19 cases are down 80% since mid-January due to the uptake of vaccines. While there were more than 12,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in First Nations across the country in the first three months of this year, now it's about 2,300 since March. So with these numbers, it looks like it's working. And there's been a push from public health experts nationwide to further prioritize other minority communities. Recent data showed that in Ontario, for example, people in neighborhoods with the highest numbers of racialized people actually have the lowest vaccination rates. 
Experts have also pointed out that the convoluted online vaccination registration system, the long lines requiring extra time off work, and the fact that non-white people are more likely to be working in public-facing service jobs have further disadvantaged some communities in getting a vaccine. Black and other racialized populations are on a priority list for Ontario's Phase 2, but these have been limited to hotspot zones. And doctors and nurses in these zones are reporting huge demand with lineups lasting hours. And in a few cases, clinics have had to close due to not having enough vaccines. Only in the past couple of days, as the third wave surges across Ontario, has the provincial government increased vaccine supply to these hot zones. But the situation is already dire in some areas. And there's evidence that without a concerted effort to target racialized communities, the consequences will also be dire. According to recent data from StatsCan, from January 2020 to January 2021, racially diverse neighborhoods in Canada had mortality rates that were more than twice as high as neighborhoods that were mostly white. In Manitoba alone, for example, First Nations people make up about half of the current cases of COVID-19 in the province, despite making up only 10% of the population. And data from Toronto last summer showed that Black people and other people of color made up 83% of positive COVID-19 tests, but only half of the city's population. Just a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Callie Barrett, a physician at UHN in Toronto, said in a statement, every person I have cared for with COVID-19 is racialized. In another tweet from just last week, an Ontario-based nurse named Birgit Umegba said that she had received a message from another ER nurse. Both had COVID-19, a pregnant woman and her hubby. We lost them all, her twin babies and her husband. The only surviving son is now an orphan. Same stories, all racialized and from multi-generational homes. These experiences will haunt us forever. The doctors and nurses on the front lines seem to grasp what racism means when it comes to the pandemic. It's not about how being Indigenous or Black or Brown makes you lucky or favored for vaccines. It's that being Indigenous or Black or Brown makes you much, much more likely to die. Others aren't so clear about what racism means. Unfortunately, that includes people with a lot of power. People like Doug Ford. It doesn't have to be about race. You can be uh, racist against people that eat little red apples. You can be racist against people that have a drinking problem. That's your Canada Land. We need your support to keep making this show, and you can give us that support so easily when you go to canadaland.com slash join, or if you're listening on your phone, just click on the show notes. There's a link in there. You can get the whole thing done in seconds, and we'll give you ad-free podcasts and other stuff. It really is a no-brainer. Go do it. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand, and our website is CanadaLand.com. That's where you can subscribe to the new season of Commons, all about real estate. It's also where you can find our job postings. Currently, we are looking for applicants to be the managing editor of podcasts here at CanadaLand. Go check out CanadaLand.com slash jobs. Sharice Sucharan produced this episode with editing and production by Jeremy Kessler. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show and the other shows that we publish, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. 
You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.